Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Good evening, everyone. Lovely to be here with you. I'm going to pray and ask God for help as we look at this passage. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have to gather as your people. And Father, I just recognize that there'll be all sorts of different sort of things going on in our lives right now. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to look at your words to understand it and to apply it so that we might be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start off with a story I, I think I very rarely share from the front. So over 10 years ago, uh, I was studying at university. I arrived at uni with, uh, as a Christian and um, I started to go along to a church and I got involved in the Christian Union at the university but it was in my second year that the wheels started falling off. I had a problem. It started off as a little bit of a niggle, like a pebble in my shoe, but it grew and it started to dominate my faith. My problem was this. I was suffering with doubt. I remember going over and over and over again in my mind with this question, is Jesus the real deal? 
Because if he is, how on earth can we know for sure? I spent a lot of my time at university, um, well, probably should have been in the classroom and uh, lectures, but spent a lot of my time in a theater. It was a lonely place to be a Christian. There weren't many of us living for Jesus there. And I remember putting on an event um, to try to meet other Christians who are into the performing arts. And um, do you know how many people came to this event? One. And it was a girl who I think just felt sorry for me. The doubt at the time was crippling. It was crippling. Is Jesus the real deal? How can we know? And if he is, why aren't more people Christians? And as these uh, questions swirled in my mind, I began to feel a bit like a lonely sinking ship. My whole worldview was kind of shaking under my feet. Now tonight, I don't know, as I prayed earlier, what each of your stories are. I don't know. When it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, I don't know what specific questions each of you are asking. But in a room of this size, I imagine there'll be a huge range. There'll be some here tonight who are not yet followers of Jesus. Perhaps you're just looking into it all, you know, just investigating, exploring. You're asking the question, is the Christian faith credible? Imagine there will be others here who are Christians, but struggling with doubt. Perhaps even kind of secretly. You might be having doubts that, you know, no one else knows about. Perhaps you feel afraid to admit it, to talk about it. Afraid what other people might think. Afraid of the shame you think would come from people knowing. Maybe there's something that's happened in your life recently that has caused you to ask questions that has led to doubt. Maybe heartache, maybe tragedy. Just this morning, my mum uh, messaged me saying that a good family friend of ours died last night. She died of a stroke. The stroke took her mind first, and then last night it took her life. Suffering can lead to questions. Why, God? Why? Just, you know, lamenting. Why does, do these things happen, God? Questions can lead to doubt. And the church can be a lonely place for people who doubt, I know. But I imagine nearly everyone here, whether you've got questions, doubts of your own or not, everyone here will know someone, whether you know it or not, who is battling some form of doubt. And when that was me, it was about sort of 12 years ago or so, I, I wish I'd spent more time in Luke's gospel. I wish I'd spent more time in a book of the Bible, perhaps more so than any other in the Bible, that it's written to assure you of your trust in Jesus. If you don't believe me, take a look with me at why the author, Dr. Luke, wrote the book. It's gonna come up on the screen. This is just from the very beginning of the book. He says, I myself, the, Dr. Luke, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In other words, the good doctor says he's written an orderly account so that you, Theophilus, you, the reader, you here tonight, us, we might have confidence that Jesus really is who he said he was. 
Just as an aside, the word certainty, when he used that word, it doesn't mean 100% knowledge. The word in the Greek just simply means kind of safety, security. Luke is writing this gospel so that you would know that your faith isn't a blind faith, but it's a secure faith, a safe faith, because Jesus really is the promised king. In fact, our passage tonight, which Zim read to us so well, gets right to the heart of Luke's intention. Last week, we uh, heard about someone coming to Jesus in faith. Well, today, tonight, we hear about someone coming to Jesus in doubt. It was said to us very simply, one point from this passage, I think, for us. Don't let your doubts be a thing, for Jesus is your promised king. It's not saying we, we, you know, we can't doubt, we mustn't doubt. It will say, don't let your doubts kind of consume you, dominate you. Don't let them become a thing. In 2014, the Archbishop of Canterbury was speaking at an engagement in Bristol. And during the talk, he announced to the people that uh, sometimes he questioned the existence of God. It was actually um, uh, when talking about some suffering that he'd had um, in his family. And the media had a field day, the International Business Times called it the doubt of the century. The London Muslim-based uh, um, scholar, Mufti Abdur Rahman, he went straight to Twitter and he tweeted, I cannot believe this. The Australian atheist columnist, Peter Fitzsimmons, uh, he tweeted, victory. But if Peter Fitzsimmons wanted a prominent Christian to admit to having doubt, he should have just looked in the Bible. <laughs> he should have looked in our passage, right? Did you notice who's suffering with doubt in our passage? It's John the Baptist himself, Jesus' own cousin. So if you've got questions and doubts, I hope you sort of feel the comfort that you're in good company, as it were. We're told back in Luke chapter three that John the Baptist had been preparing the people for the coming king, King Jesus. I love the film. Hands up if you watched the film Aladdin. This, uh, the, the animated one? Yeah, okay, just, just, um, I love that film. Um, there's that great scene after uh, the genie has turned Aladdin into Prince Ali and um, they march to the palace of Agrabah and ahead of Prince Ali march hundreds of people and they're calling out, shouting, make way for Prince Ali. They actually sing it, but I'm not gonna sing it for you. <laughs> no one wants to hear that, believe me. Um, John has been telling people in Luke's gospel, make way for, uh, for King Jesus, make way for King Jesus. But then we're told in chapter three of this book that John is locked up in prison. So you can see why he might be having doubts about King Jesus. The Old Testament promised that there would be a mighty king to come who was gonna save his people. So John, along with many others, they're thinking, Jesus is going to come and overthrow the Roman rulers. So there's John. He's, he'd be thinking in, when he's sat in prison, what a colossal anticlimax. Maybe like Aladdin, pretending to be Prince Ali, John wondered whether Jesus was just a pretender. And maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking something similar. Maybe you're thinking, how can someone born in a wooden manger, 
thousands of years ago, hundreds of miles away, who died a humiliating death on a wooden cross. How can that person claim to be the son of God? Because it just sounds so far-fetched. Maybe he's just a pretender. If Dr. Luke was here with us, he would say, that's exactly why I've written this book. I want you to have confidence in your faith in Jesus. If you've got questions, niggles, doubts, well, so did John the Baptist. In other words, the issue is not whether you have questions, but the issue is what are you gonna do about them? John could easily have renounced his faith and then be set free from the prison. And I guess you could use your questions, your doubts, as a reason to walk away. Maybe you're looking at your non-Christian friends and you're thinking, I want what they have. I want that life of excess. And so because of your questions, you're tempted to walk away. But there is another option. Will you do what John does? Will you have the courage to investigate? You see, after hearing about Jesus' miracles in verse 18 of our passage, John sends his disciples, his followers, to get uh, to 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 the bottom of it all. Take a look, um, verse 18. John's disciples told him uh, about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? The question couldn't be clearer. Luke kind of repeats it twice. Is Jesus the promised king? Is he the one? It's a common trope in films, isn't it? Is someone the one? Is Neo the one in the Matrix who's going to overthrow the machines? Is Harry the one in Potterworld who's going to overthrow Voldemort? Is Aragorn the one in Lord of the Rings who's going to overthrow Mordor? But unsurprisingly, the trope finds its prototype in the real story of humanity and of Jesus Christ. Right back at the very beginning of the human story, we're told someone is coming, the one who's going to liberate God's people. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told someone is coming who's going to save this world from the curse of sin. All that is broken, all that is messy, all that is painful, someone is coming who's going to fix it. We're told later in the Old Testament, this person coming, the one coming, he's going to be a king, a king who will turn failure into success. Which would have made John, sitting in prison, feeling like a failure, asking If Jesus is the promised king, where's the success? I'm in prison. And maybe in the quietness of your heart, that might be a question for you too. You're not in prison, but maybe you're yet to find a job that truly satisfies. Maybe you're yet to have a romantic relationship that truly lasts, or if you have, it's not as good as you thought it would be. Maybe you're thinking, how can Jesus be the one if my life doesn't match my hopes and dreams? You might be thinking, 
I think I know what success looks like in my life and my life isn't it right now. There might be all sorts of reasons why, why you might be doubting whether Jesus is the one. So when Jesus is asked the question, are you the promised one? What does he say? You'd expect him to say, yes, I am. I am the, I am the promised one. But he doesn't. He, his response actually is way, way better. It's way better than that. And no wonder Dr. Luke tells us about it. Jesus doesn't say he's the promised king. He proves it. In the Matrix, Neo proves he's the one when he manages to dodge a flurry of bullets fired at him. In Harry Potter, Harry proves he's the one when he survives Voldemort's curse and then triumphs at King's Cross. In Lord of the Rings, Aragorn proves he's the one by brandishing the sword, defeating the army of Mordor, and then healing his friends in the book. But all of these stories have nothing on Jesus because they're all made up. Luke wants to make it very, very clear that what we are dealing with in our passage is genuine history. Events based on eyewitness testimony. Jesus proves he's the one by his miracles. He basically says to John's followers, John's disciples, don't just take my word for it. Take a look. After witnessing Jesus' miracles, Jesus said to John's disciples, verse 22, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now these particular miracles are significant. They act a bit like a checklist to what was promised in the Old Testament of what would happen in the kingdom of the promised king. So for example, take a look at um, Isaiah, written hundreds of years before this um, in chapter 35 of Isaiah. It says, the blind will be receiving sight. Tick. The deaf, hearing. Tick. The lame, walking. Tick. Jesus proves by his actions that he really is the king promised hundreds of years before. It would be a bit like... Um, Someone claiming to be Taylor Swift, there she is. Someone claiming to be Taylor Swift. But you would know that she's Taylor Swift when she started singing. Or someone claiming to be Rory McIlroy. But you would know it's Rory McIlroy when he started teeing off. Dr. Luke wants each of us to know that Jesus is the promised king. The atheist Christopher Hitchens once said, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. But I hope we've understood by now that Luke wrote this gospel because of arguments like that of Christopher Hitchens. Luke is based it all on eyewitness accounts. And not only that, but what is being witnessed is fulfilling promises made hundreds of years before. Jesus fulfills promises. And actually, even what John the Baptist did, well, that also proved Jesus is the promised king. Take a look at verse 27. Luke says, this is, uh, the, uh, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Remember how John was like those people in Aladdin? Make way for King Jesus. Well, even that 
fulfilled a promise way back from the Old Testament in a book called Malachi, that a messenger would go ahead of the promised king, preparing the way. Now listen, Luke details all of this so that we can say with confidence, don't let your doubts be a thing, for Jesus is the promised king. Which incidentally is why Jesus says, verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, don't let your doubts dominate you. Don't doubt because of any kind of wrong expectations of me. Don't doubt because you expect me to bust you out of prison, John. Don't doubt because you expect me to provide you with a job that fully satisfies you. Don't doubt because you expect me to provide you with a romantic relationship that you've been craving for. Luke is pleading with us, don't let wrong expectations of Jesus' first coming make you doubt. R. Kent Hughes, he's a, um, a pastor, writer in the States. He once said this. He said, I have seen people, it's coming up on the screen, I've seen people who profess to be Christians fall away when they did not get the marriage partner they hoped for or the healing or the prosperity they felt ought to be part of their lives. So today, as much as ever, perhaps even more so in our self-focused contemporary culture, we need to live out this beatitude. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And I think, if I may, my one addition to what he says in that quote would be this. As we go on reading Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus has come to do so much more than we can ask or imagine. He promises to welcome his people, us, into a heavenly paradise that will last for eternity. In fact, if you want a taste of what this heavenly paradise will look like, just take a look at these miracles in this passage that Jesus performs. You know, the blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the dead are rising. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books, he describes these miracles as like snowdrop flowers. Because in the middle of a hard winter, snowdrops reassure us that summer is coming. And maybe your life in this world feels like a hard winter. Last week, there was an invitation to come forward if you wanted prayer for healing. Because we believe that God is powerful and able to bring supernatural healing even today. And maybe, you know, you're desperate for healing in your life, but it hasn't yet come. And I can only imagine how hard that must be. Perhaps your life feels like a hard winter. Can I encourage you tonight to look at the snowdrops? Look at Jesus' miracles. Have comfort amongst the pain and the sadness, knowing that summer is coming. A day is coming when you will be healed. Not for 30 years, not for 40 years, not for 50 years, but for eternity. Jesus proves it by what he did when he first walked this planet 2,000 years ago. There is hope. Don't listen to the lies of doubt. Summer is coming. Don't let your doubts be a thing, for Jesus is the promised king. The king who came to bring our greatest need.
our needs be made right with God and so be welcomed into that future glorious summer. Because one day, the Bible says, we'll each have to give an account of our lives before God. And there'll be things that each of us will be proud of, I'm sure, things we'll gladly share. But if you're anything like me, there'll be stories upon stories upon stories in our life where we've rejected God and lived for ourselves or neglected God and just ignored him altogether. And so on that day to come, I'm gonna need help. I'm gonna need help if I want to be welcomed into God's eternal heavenly paradise, that future summer to come. And that's the need King Jesus supremely brings. Just keep reading Luke's gospel. It's as if Jesus is saying to John and to any of us in this passage, you can think bigger. You can ask bigger. I'm not gonna bust you out of an earthly prison, John. I'm gonna bust you out of an eternal prison. King Jesus did that for you and for me when he died on a cross. He paid the price for our rejection and neglection of God. And then he rose to new victorious life after death, showing us that there is a new perfect life to come. A life free from the curse of sin. A life free from hurt and pain. A life free from dissatisfaction, from relational heartache. A life free even from prison, John. That's why Jesus is the one. That's why we can say with confidence, don't let your doubts be a thing. But Jesus is the promised king. Now I shared at the start uh, my story of struggling with doubt. And I said there were two questions niggling away at my faith. The first one was, is Jesus the real deal? And our passage so far has been answering that question. But there was another question, if you remember. The question was this, if Jesus is the real deal, why aren't more people Christians? And our final verses in this passage show us the answer to that question, I think. And you know, maybe it's a question you're asking yourself as you consider your family members, your friends, your colleagues who aren't believers. Surely, if, you know, if Jesus is the promised king, more people would be bowing the knee to him. To which Jesus, after giving a defense for John's ministry, provides a fascinating insight. He implies that it's not for a lack of evidence that people don't believe. Instead, often, it's that people don't like what Jesus says. People don't like what Jesus asks for. He says in verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. In other words, people want Jesus to dance to their tune. And so when he doesn't, people don't bow the knee to the king. I recently read an article by someone called Joshua Haujago. He's a writer and editor of the New Scientist magazine. He's also a Christian. And he made this exact point. He said, he wrote, we might think that uh, proof of God would be an egg on the face of atheists, perhaps. But for many, the idea of God is not only unbelievable, but also distasteful. People don't like what Jesus says, 
so they don't bow the knee. Jesus says, I am the king. But the human heart whispers, I want to be the king. So we find ourselves thinking, if not saying to Jesus, you dance to my tune. And then our faith is impacted when he doesn't. The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, there's the big man himself up on the screen. Uh, He once told the story of a gardener who uh, presented his king with the greatest carrot he'd ever grown. The king was touched and responded by giving the gardener a large plot of land. Now, a nobleman saw all of this happen, and so he thought it'd be advantageous for him to give the king his best horse. So he did. But the king merely thanked him for the horse. The nobleman was confused, and so the king explained to him, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The point is this. If we think Jesus is someone who dances to our tune, if we think Jesus is someone who just gives us what we want, then we've created a kind of counterfeit God for ourselves. And this counterfeit God will let us down time and time again. It will lead to doubt and uncertainty. In the extreme, it led the religious leaders in Jesus' time to call John the Baptist a demon and Jesus a drunkard. It was their way of kind of dismissing them because they weren't dancing to their tune. Which brings us, as we close, back to Jesus being the real deal. You see, if Jesus is the promised king, he doesn't dance to our tune, but we dance to his. Luke, at the end, calls this way of life, this dance, if you like, he calls it wisdom. It's a way of him saying, it's a good tune, a beautiful dance. A dance of life made right with God. A dance of hope in a summer paradise to come. A dance to a tune that tells us that we don't need to let our doubts be a thing. For Jesus really is the promised king. Amen.